Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. Part of the challenge has always been that this has to do with religion. And most of us see religion as a very personal matter. And, you know, we want to be tolerant of one another's faith and sincerely held beliefs. And we prefer to have discussions about policy and politics Mm. without sort of intruding into that private realm. Mm. And that's, I think, something that religious nationalist leaders around the country and around the world are very well aware of. And Donald Trump was well aware. He sort of bubble wrapped himself in sanctimony. I mean, he's hardly the model of a values voter himself. But when he does his rallies, he has a preacher to his right and a preacher to his left. They're always warm up acts, right? And in fact, he's like insulating himself from criticism and from scrutiny by saying, well, look at these holy men. Hi, this is Frank Schaefer, and this is my podcast, In Conversation with Frank Schaefer. It is a live event on Facebook, then goes to YouTube, then goes to my podcast, and all the places the the internet allows you to post things. I'm going to be talking with Catherine Stewart today, who I'll introduce properly. We will put links to her book uh, and any other links she gives us for those who want to follow up on her And with that, let me just introduce Catherine. She's the author of The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. I don't know, and I'm about to ask Catherine this when she wrote the book, but um, she could not have written a more timely book, obviously. And then more recently, I think it was last week, Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong, I read a New York Times article by you called Christian Nationalists Are Excited About What Comes Next. Um, And so let's talk about all that. But before we get to that, what, you know, my background's very simple, thumbnail sketch, son of an evangelical pastor who became very famous. I was his nepotistic sidekick in the 70s and 80s. I've spent um, the last 30, 35 years repenting of that and trying to distance myself and explain it. But no one ever asked me, why are you interested in the subject of, re- of the religious right or Christian nationalism? So now I'm going to ask you, because I don't know what your personal background is. What drew you to this subject first and why are you writing on this aside from the value of the material, which is invaluable at this point? What what pulls you into this, this orbit? You know, I first got interested in this topic in 2009. I was living in Santa Barbara, California with my family and uh, our daughter was um, maybe six years old. And I learned that something called a good news club was coming to our public elementary school. Good news clubs are... Uh, uh, target children in their very earliest years of learning in public elementary schools, five, six years old, seven years old, 
with the message that without Jesus, they're going to go to hell. Um, they, um, they, the centerpiece of the program is called the wordless book. It's got no words, just pictures and colors and shapes. And it's used to convert children who are literally too young to read, um, uh, with this, uh, deeply reactionary, um, message. And, um, listen, I, um, I was really confused when I learned that these, they're after school clubs and they require parental permission to join but I know very well, anyone who has kids or has worked with them very well knows that kids cannot make a distinction between an activity that takes place in their school and one sponsored by their school. Kids this age think if it's taught in their school, often by their teachers, because sometimes teachers at school, um, you know, the, uh, the Good News Club tries to get, often tries to get teachers in the school already to, uh, you know, work as Good News Club teachers after school. Um, those kids think, you know, the public school has a cloak of authority. If it's taught in their school, um, it must be what the school wants them to believe. And they get really confused thinking that the religion of the good news clubs are supported by their school. And that's what the school and the government wants to um, mm. them to believe. So I thought these kinds of clubs were wildly inappropriate in a public school environment, which is diverse. You know, public schools are supposed to be non-sectarian, neither denigrating nor promoting any particular form of faith so that all families can feel comfortable. Um, But, uh, you know, so I always thought it was sort of um, a one-off. But the more I learned about the Good News Clubs, the more concerned I became. And I was really stunned by the legal strategy that had made their um their uh their presence in the public schools possible in these public elementary schools mm-hmm. uh, prior to 2001 good news clubs took place in uh in churches in in people's homes in parks um in rented facilities any of the number of other places that were all free to practice our faith if any um and in our community it was really interesting as a group of parents um, uh, approached the Good News Club leaders and offered them free and better space in the church, literally next door to the school, the Montecito Covenant Church, beautiful church, um, and the Good News Club leaders declined. I mean, it was like maybe 40 feet away, and they declined. They insisted on being in the public school. And that's where I really thought, huh, why do they need to be in the public school? If they really want to have an after-school club for kids, why don't they? It wasn't even across the street. It was like just next door. So I started to sort of look into the Good News Clubs and movement behind it, the legal strategy that had made their presence in public elementary schools possible. And I began to recognize that, um, you know, I went to their national convention. I went to Good News Clubs, ended up going to good news, some Good News Clubs around the country, went through one of their training programs. And um, I, I began to recognize that the, the, the Good News Clubs were just one small part of a much larger war by the religious right on public education and the war in public education was just one small part of a much larger war on America's modern constitutional democracy. Now I know you wrote about that experience because I read it and forgive me that I'm so ill-prepared but I'm trying to remember did I read that in a book or did I read that in an article because I know that story and it got my attention at the time when I first read it and um I've kind of been following what you've done since. When when did you write that down and what was the context of that? I wrote a book called The Good News Club, 
That's um, it. That's it. Yeah. I published that book in 2012. Yes. And over the years, I you listen, I trained as an investigative reporter early in my career. And over the years, I just kept researching and digging and writing about this topic. It's like I've fallen down a rabbit hole. Sure. And I can't get out. So let me tell you a little bit about this rabbit hole and how deep it is and how you know important it is right now to sort of understand what we're looking at. Yeah. I don't think we can understand the polarization uh, in our culture. I don't think we can understand what's happening in our politics without understanding something about the Christian nationalist movement. It's, mm. it's people, it's uh, modes of operation, it's infrastructure. So let's unpack that in a minute, but let me ask you just a, a nuts and bolts question here about the power worshipers. Um, when did that book come out? That book came out in 2020 and the um, paperback just came out. Okay. So the paperback, I knew something was new and that's the paperback. I knew yeah. about the book before that when it did come out. Um the question I have for you is, is, do you feel now that with the Supreme Court ruling, not just on Roe, but all of a sudden the coach praying at the 50-yard line and everything else that's happened, um, is there anything you would change or add to the power worshipers? Would you update it or do you feel it was prophetic enough that uh, essentially it stands? Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. You know, I wouldn't call it prophetic. Um, it's just a deeply reported book uh, over the past, you know, since 2009, really, when I first got interested in this topic, past yeah. 13 years or so, I've been going to religious right meetings and strategy gatherings and conferences. I've been speaking to um, members of the leadership and members of the rank and file. I've been, you know, watching as, as sure. you probably have podcasts and listening to radio and reading what they've written, reading their mm. books. And um, it's not that they're hiding. It's that we're not listening. Yeah, and I, I was going to jump in on that. We're not listening part. So don't let me just breeze by that. Sorry to interrupt you. Keep going with what you're saying, but we're going to go back to that. Well, it's just they're very clear about what they want, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, for instance, I was in um, uh, the National Pro-Life Summit this year in uh, January in Washington, D.C., and Christian Hawkins, who's a very sort of powerful movement leader, she heads up the Students for Life of America, the Students for Life Action, and, you know, was one of the key anti-abortion uh, organizations in our country, and she said, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're, we want to introduce a constitutional amendment banning abortion throughout the country. And by the way, everybody there expected Road to be overturned. You could kind of feel it, you sure. know, the way we talk about it. And they'd be like a little coy, like, oh, we don't really know. But, you know, what we're going to do is this is going to be a 50 state battle. The idea that Roe is going to be overturned. They're not 
resting on their no. laurel. This is not, not taking us a, a moment to savor their success. They're like, this is great. They just see this as the beginning. They're like, great, we're going to make this a 50 state battle. And Christian Hawkins said is we want to introduce a constitutional amendment banning abortion throughout the country, but that's going to take some time. Mm. And a representative of the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of the main legal advocacy groups of the religious right and sort of behind a lot of their sort of religious liberty cases that we've dealt mm. with over the years. He pretty much said the same thing. So, um, and in the meantime, they're pursuing um, these novel legal structures, these sort of long arm of the law structures so that people in states where um, like Texas could sue, not just an abortion provider in Massachusetts, mm. but a taxi driver who drives sure. uh, a woman who needs healthcare to the facility or yeah. an internet service provider who um, provides information about obtaining um, mm. uh, reproductive care and abortion care on their website, things like that. So it's it's a deeply radical movement and, um, and, and their view, they're just kind of getting started. I think to an underappreciated degree, the strategy is led by the legal advocacy organizations, the legal strategists. And um, that's why they've invested so much time and so much money and so many resources to transforming our courts. Yeah, and been very successful at it. Now, let me back up to that other issue we were mentioning a moment ago. Um, you know, I had Jared Yates Sexton on the other day, who's a commentator who I, I follow and I've talked to before, a historian. And I brought up a point with him, a, a little story that I'm going to tell you, uh, not go into it too deeply, as a way to launch a little discussion with you on why uh, so many people who have been um, looking at this seems to have been asleep at the switch. You know, back in the mid-1980s, I was on the Today Show with Jane Pauley, who was then the host. And at that point in the early 80s, it was, I was on the religious right, and I was there complaining of the unfair treatment we were getting in that the books that my father was writing, like How Should We Then Live, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, A Christian Manifesto, were neither being reviewed by the New York Times or counted in their bestseller list. And I was chastising them for religious, for bias against religious books. The funny thing is, if you fast forward, you know, whatever it is now, uh, 40 years later, um, 30 some years, 40 years later, uh, I, I would actually, uh, uh, it's one of the few things that I said that I would still agree with, but for a very different reason. And that is the very fact that so much of the groundwork that we were laying and others like us were laying, Paul Weirich and others, was ignored, studiously ignored by the, the New York Times and other newspapers and magazines. You know, at the time that my father was just starting to get famous, the only major news organization in America because in the day when magazines were big that had a religion section was Newsweek. And they did two articles on him, one in 1963, when they did a piece called Missionary to the Intellectuals, when Newsweek was a very big deal, when you got, you know, they sent a photographer and the whole bit to his little mission in Switzerland. And another one in the 19, early 1980s, talking about the movie series we had done that everybody else was ignoring. So it, when I look at the flat-footedness of people like Hillary Clinton and others who came along and were surprised that Donald Trump won, and was able to call into being this enormous army of evangelical voters on these litmus test issues. You know, my, my view in hindsight is, isn't it a shame that people like the New York Times were not showing secular readers uninformed about the religious right, the fact that books by my father called A Christian Manifesto 
calling for the violent overthrow of the US government if all else failed on abortion, were, if counted, the number one bestseller in the United States, month after month after month, outselling two and three to one, the number one books on the bestseller list often. It sent a picture that A, these people don't matter, or we can ignore them because they're just somewhere in the middle and don't count. And by the way, we don't have to pay attention to what they're saying or thinking because you'll never see their books reviewed, some of which are very radical and actually well-argued given the point that they're trying to make of enormous influence. So that's a long preamble, but now I want you to take all the time you need to talk about A, why the rise of the religious right has been so studiously ignored. We've been caught again and again underestimating what's been going on. And now, even in the present tense, with the, with the exception of, say, the article you wrote for the New York Times a couple of days ago or weeks ago, Christian nationalists are excited about what comes next. It's still far and few between in terms of really explaining what's going on. Have at it. So much to say here. My goodness. Um, I think there are a couple of different factors in play. Um, first of all, I think that Part of the challenge has always been that this has to do with religion. And most of us see religion as a very personal matter. Um, and, you know, we want to be tolerant of one another's uh, faith and sincerely held beliefs. And we prefer to have discussions about um, policy and politics without regard to that private without sort of intruding into that private realm mm. and that's i think something that religious nationalist leaders around the country uh, and around the world are very well aware of and this, donald trump was well aware of. he sort of bubble wrapped himself in sanctimony i mean he's hardly the model of a values voter himself mm. but when he does his rallies he has a preacher to his right and a preacher to his left they're always warm-up acts right and in fact he's like um insulating himself from criticism and from scrutiny by saying, well, look at these holy men. And, and you, you see it around the world. Look at what Vladimir Putin did in Russia or what Erdogan does in Turkey or what the leaders in Iran do, right? Or when Modi in, in, in India with, with Hindu nationalism. Right. And when they bind themselves really tightly to um, very reactionary um religious leaders and clerics in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power. Mm -hmm. We rightly recognize this as a form of religious nationalism. And that's certainly what we saw with Donald Trump. And we see um, all kinds of politicians on the right doing it today. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget this movement that for many years, the Republican Party thought they could make use of because they delivered, you know, once they sure. sort of moral majority came about, people started getting um, uh, fundamentalists who had once separated themselves from politics started getting engaged with politics once again. They delivered a reliable slice of Republican votes. But today, uh, the Republican Party is completely beholden to this movement. It's basically seized control of the Republican Party. And so many, uh, I would say, more you know traditional Republicans feel like they don't have party anymore. Mm. Um, we can look at somebody like Liz Cheney uh, and, and see where she's coming from. But... Um, so there's that, you know, the sort of um, the sanctimony sort mm -hmm. of offers a kind of protection. So people don't want to sort of intrude too much. Um, so there's that. I think another reason why we fail to appreciate the 
this movement, and it still happens as people still see it as a cultural movement. They think it's preoccupied with issues like abortion or same-sex marriage. They fail to recognize that you know, political movements have political aims and political modes of operation. And this is a movement that has deep infrastructure and political aims, and they have invested for decades in all the features of modern political campaigns, right-wing policy groups, legal advocacy groups, legislative initiatives, uh, networking organizations, um, a a da data organizations, very sophisticated use of data, a far-right messaging sphere that often serves um, to separate large numbers of the rank and file, frankly, from the facts, all working together for common political aims. Um, I think some people still continue to characterize this as a movement about the evangelicals, as we sometimes hear. This movement includes many evangelicals, but it excludes many evangelicals too. And it includes representatives of a variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion, and even derives support from some people who don't particularly identify as religious at all. So I think that it's been misinterpreted and continues sometimes to be misinterpreted as just a cultural movement, whereas in fact, this is a political movement and it has political aims and it has ideas for our country that are not consistent with um, the best of the American promise and with our constitution as it, as it was written. So um, I think these are all factors in contributing to why the movement has not been explored. Now that said, since you offered me all the time I need to um, unpack this, I want to say, I think the message is really starting to get through. Um, uh, many mainstream newspapers have done a terrific job in recent, over the past year in starting to explore some of these issues. Some of the um, religion writers um, have done a really wonderful job of reporting. And, um, and, uh, and, and yeah, I think January 6th was really um, uh, like um, uh, a Rubicon, you know? Yeah. Uh, we all saw all that religious signage. We all heard the prayers. We all saw this sort of this sort of um, combination of religious nationalism and white nationalism, which are not the same thing. But there's like if there's a Venn diagram, you see there's actually overlap, right? Sometimes quite a lot of overlap, although um, the relationships can be complex at times. So I do think the messages are you know about the threat this movement poses to our democracy. Are, are are breaking through. And I think um, people are very concerned. Most Americans, including most American Christians, reject the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. Hmm. And you know, when you're talking about how it such a long time in coming and the percolation of all these groups working together, I think, you know, one person who very much comes to mind and kind of, kind of being a, an example of the whole package is Amy Coney Barrett, because on the scrutiny side, I was amazed in the hearings knowing something about the, the group she came from, which is genuinely a cultic fringe evangelical charismatic group rooted in Catholicism, but essentially run along evangelical charismatic lines with you know uh, weirdly named handmaids who, who are in charge of people's lives, telling them who they can marry and date and so forth. Um, my old friends on the Federalist Society that my dad was involved with at the very beginning of that organization telling young evangelical lawyers, don't become pastors, don't become missionaries, go to law school, and someday you'll be a judge. Uh, you know, this, this is 50 years in the making. And she is sort of almost um, 
the Manchurian candidate. I don't mean that in the conspiratorial sense of, of what that raises, but if you have an example of someone who avoided scrutiny during the hearings for her confirmation, no one brought up religion. They talked a little bit about Roe v. Wade and abortion, but no one asked her about her faith in terms well, of her cult, cultic connections. Everybody has a right to their religion. Everybody has yeah. people are brought up in all different types of faith environments, and that's absolutely fine. The question is, are you going to allow your faith, whatever that faith may be, to right. guide uh, your interpretation of the law? Or do you believe that our law should be based on the Bible? Or do you believe that we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people? And our and and the law should should be fair for everybody and equitable for everybody. Do you believe in enshrining into law privileges for certain mm -hmm. approved groups and the the idea that um, members of disapproved groups, which can include um, uh, members of moderate or liberal traditions, religious traditions, mm -hmm. uh, secularists, LGBT Americans, and so many others, should you believe those groups can be targeted for contempt? And of course, the answer is never going to be, oh, yes, I do. But when you hear people like Brett Kavanaugh um, or Alito talk about, you know, uh, history and tradition, they kept they kept bringing this up. And, you know, I remember that during his uh, confirmation hearings, um, when he was asked about religious freedom, uh, uh, Kavanaugh said that the term history and tradition, history and tradition, like, you know, as it relates to religion, like, mm. okay, whose history, whose version of the history are you talking sure. about? Which traditions are you talking about? And you can see that this kind of setup, and Alito mentioned this sort of same term in his opinion in, the, in Dobbs, this is kind of thing is a setup for favoring certain religious viewpoints and viewpoints of conscience over others, uh, setting up um, an unequal system. And, and that's not that's that's really un-American. I mean, you yeah. know, values of equality and pluralism uh, represent the best of the American promise. Well, and that happens whether it's the Hobby Lobby decision saying that, you know, certain companies don't have to provide insurance for contraceptive coverage uh, and other times uh, churches are exempt from uh, having not to meet during a, an, an epidemic or perhaps don't have to wear masks and so forth. You see a whole uh, sort of summer world, whatever that animal farm thing, you know, some, we're all equal, but some of us are more equal than others. Um, and it's beginning, it's beginning to come into the picture very dynamically from the Supreme Court. But I think there's a second question, you know, you were talking about, well, what would private religious belief and we don't, you know, she has the right to believe what she wants and so forth. Well, of course, but you also have to understand, and here's where I speak from my own background, that if you have a level of religious fervor and fanaticism combined with politics and your religion is telling you that God is on your side and basically the biblical narrative says that it's fine to lie when you need to in order to prosecute God's agenda, whether that's King David or whomever it may be, all kinds of um, you know, machinations to trick the enemy, whether they're the Philistines or whatever other godless forces you're up against um, and so on. A very legitimate question is, do you feel your religion gives you the right to lie to uh, U.S. senators when they are confirming you because of some greater good that you are now dedicated to, which overrides uh, everything from good manners to telling the truth. Because I think when you look at a number of these candidates, 
certainly this would have been the case with Ginny Thomas, not that she's on the court, but her husband is, that, that evangelical mix of politics and religion also opens the door to a level of um, conniving and prevarication that I don't think most people coming from a secular background would include in their kind of political philosophy, but evangelicals would. Not all evangelicals, but this brand, because the higher good, the saving of the nation has to come first. And I don't think that a lot of the friends that I have in a more secular context understand religious fervor at that level. I do, because I was part of that. Yeah, look, I mean, you're absolutely right. They see themselves as engaged in an apocalyptic struggle between absolute good and absolute evil. And so they'll do anything, no matter how radical, to supposedly save America from pluralistic sure. um, democracy. Um, all that religious rhetoric we saw at the uh, during January 6th and all the sort of signage and stuff, that's sort of that, what that was about. I think it's really um, that connects so much uh, to well to the whole spreading the election lies. I mean, mm -hmm. we can't forget that Trump started spreading the lie of the stolen election even before the election during a uh, a, a debate he had with Joe Biden mm -hmm. uh, even before before the election took place. But um, but that messaging uh, and when he lost, you know, that messaging was spread through movement infrastructure. This sort of um, religious uh, infrastructure, the religious right, um, and it's uh, and it's different um, organizational pieces. So it was spread through right wing policy groups, it was spread through pastoral initiative like faith mm. wins, it was spread through networking organizations, even, you know, clerical outreach initiatives, um, the Council for National Policy has an affiliated group called the um, Conservative Action Project, they issued a statement um, calling on um, members of the Senate to contest the electoral votes from Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and other states where um, that were the, the sort of uh, focus of these Republicans' baseless allegations. Mm. I went to a pastor gathering in, um, in Virginia, uh, where it was an initiative, uh, part of a group, uh, an initiative called Faith Wins, where they hold hundreds of pastor events, not just for a single pastor, for multiple pastors, um, all across the country. Um, David Barton and his son were featured speakers doing, you know, sort of America as a Christian nation myth-making stuff. And then Chad Connolly from the Council for National Policy was there telling mm -hmm. these pastors that we need to engage. And there was another speaker who said the church is not a cruise ship, the church is a battleship. And then there was this guy named Hogan Gidley, who was the head of, uh, he used to be on the Trump administration. So he was very tightly affiliated with Trump. And he was part of an election. He was featured as an elections integrity specialist. And he gets up there and he's just lying about how all these dead people are voting and the election is stolen, et cetera, et cetera, spreading these lies to the dozens of pastors who are there. And they sort of whip everybody up into this sort of terror, this sort of person, we're being persecuted, America's on the brink, you need to get your people out to vote. And then they give them all these tools to do it. So they give them, you know, voter guides, sermon starters, um, there were, you know, the promises of videos that you can air at church, presentations you can do at church, presentation mm -hmm. materials. Oh, um, impact team um, manuals, as they call them, community impact team manuals, where if the pastor doesn't, you know, they're not, pastors aren't supposed to tell their congregants the candidates to vote for because, right. you know, in theory, they risk losing their 51c3 tax status. But they, what they do is they have these manuals that tell the pastor 
like give the instructions for how to get like five or six or seven congregants together and give them the job of turning out their fellow congregants to vote for certain candidates and educating them about the supposedly biblical values that should matter in these election cycles. So um, we can see the infrastructure at work. It sort of functions as a very large voter turnout machine. And one of the reasons we're dealing with such crazy polarization in our society today and why the Republican Party has gone so far to the right is because movement leaders threaten to run primary challenges to Republican sure. politicians who fail to conform to their most radical um, policy positions. Hmm. So, um, you know, again, I was at the National Pro-Life Conference in Washington, D.C., and speakers there were basically at one of the legislative initiatives saying, well, you know, if so-and-so doesn't adopt our new, I don't know, whatever, you know, very extreme anti-abortion law, we're going to run a primary challenge. And then they talk about the money they have, the resources they have to devote to those primary challenges. And so a lot of Republicans today are in safe seats, you know, in, in, in the states. And the only way they can be challenged is if somebody runs to their right. So they will adopt the hard right position in order to avoid those primary challenges. Hmm. So, yeah. um, yeah, and I think there's something that, of course, back in the day when I was on the other side of the issues in the 70s and 80s, what we never foresaw was any element of our movement that would question democracy itself. In other words, even the theocrats like Rush Dooney and Gary North and these other reconstructionists were working under the idea that the kind of democratic way that we do things in America was here for keeps and we had to to, to undermine it by imposing biblical law, but at some point we were going to need to work through the system. And now, of course, it's jumped the tracks to the point where the, the mainstream evangelical movement, where it has become politicized, has gotten to the point where not only is it questioning our democratic system of elections, they're, they're, they're working actively in state houses and through other means to try to end run the system completely where they you cannot win anymore within this system unless you are running a, a radicalized right-wing Republican who agrees with you on all the issues all the way to the online. I don't know, you know, obviously you've been observing this, but maybe you want to just talk about that sort of change because this is not the traditional evangelical position even from back when we were involved with it, an overt anti-democracy position is really different. This is a new thing. Although I seem to recall a quote, like a passage where um, Rush Dooney was talking about the heresy of democracy. Sure, I mean, oh no, he, he didn't only... like it. And he, he was pro-slavery as well, but he I didn't know. think that you could introduce these things by just jumping the whole system. In other words, he didn't foresee the day when the mass of evangelicals would reject democracy as right. a thing in favor of a completely different narrative. And I and the problem is I don't quite know what they want to replace what we've had with. In other words, if elections are always rigged from the point of view of, of Republicans win when they lose or win when they win, um, are, are have you been running into speakers at these meetings you've attended who foresee what the next step to this is? How do they see that playing out? In other words, in the best of all worlds, where will they wind up? Well, what's really interesting is I think that um, these religious nationalists never bring about uh, a religious democracy and often not even a pure theocracy. What these uh, religious nationalist uh, projects tend to produce is uh, kleptocratic, often nepotistic autocracies hmm. where 
there is very little uh, scrutiny, ability to scrutinize or exert any kind of check on leadership. And they just end up like, you know, stealing from the public treasury, directing resources to their little group of, hmm. of friends. I mean, we, we've seen this all over the world. You just look at, at like, look what happened in Putin's Russia. Look what's happened in, um, I mean, there are too many examples of, of theocratic uh, regimes all across the world where you have sort of an oligarchic elite. Sure. elite. And, and I think this is one of the reasons um, that one of the things people fail to understand about the movement, it's incredibly well-funded because there are a number of um, funders that um, I think they're as committed, if not more committed to far-right economic policies than they are to positions of the so-called culture wars. They're committed to low taxes or no taxes for the rich, minimal regulation of government or no regulation, I'm sorry, of business or no regulation of business. Hmm. Um, uh, policies that are going to privilege them and allow them to sort of, um, you know, avoid avoid their taxes. And this would be the Cokes um, and the Mercers and people, but with also a new group coming in because you have folks uh, like Musk now talking sort of in the same vein, hating the SEC and talking about regulation. I mean, how far would that go in terms of sort of a weird alliance of, of the billionaire class and then right-wing religious activism, all of which feeds into this? I, You know, it, it's kind of daunting. It's the same thing. I mean, it's very interesting. So these folks may be, you know, in it for the money, just in it for the money, because whatever they have isn't enough. But um, how do you get the rank and file to vote for po those policies? How sure. do you get them to support politicians who are going to intensify economic inequality, which is already at sort of record levels? Um, you get them through the culture wars. You dangle these culture wars like little shiny baubles in front of them. And, oh, abortion. Oh, oh, trans this. And like stuff that, you know, in, uh, was South Dakota, perhaps. I think I spoke to a pastor the other day, a progressive pastor in South Dakota said, you know, we had this law, I think it was South Dakota, maybe Kentucky, some law about transports. And it's like, there's one student, one student in the entire state that this actually, you know, applies to. applies to, but they get everybody thinking about it because they don't want them to be thinking about the fact that, um, you know, this is a movement that, that claims to stand for family values. And yet they're endorsing politicians supporting the careers of politicians whose economic policies are making it so much more difficult for so many American families to succeed. You know, mm -hmm. I remember in advance of the 2020 election, listening to, I believe it was Franklin Graham. And he said, um, he said, Donald Trump is nostalgic for the 1950s and early 1960s. And we're nostalgic for the 1950s and early 1960s too. And that's why we support Donald Trump. Well, let's think about what's happening in the economy in the 1950s. Yeah. The average worker made, I think, um, a 20th of the amount of money that the CEO, average CEO made. So the average CEO made 20 times or maybe 21 times the amount of the average worker. Hmm. So that meant they could have a nice house, send their kids to private school, get a boat, maybe a second house, whatever, have a very nice lifestyle. Today, the average CEO, I saw some figure, it was like, well over 400 or 600 times like right. the sort of economic inequality if you look at it it's like like the staircase is elongated right mm. so much harder to get a leg up and there's so much further down to fall and um but as far as a lot of the plutocratic funders of the movement are concerned people like the devos princes or, or um, the wilkes brothers or um or uh you know the green family or so many others that i describe in the power shippers 
I mean, this is these policies are 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 very much a part of what they're working towards. Well, they've always been more interested in the economics. I remember Rich DeVos, who started Amway with Jay Van Andel, helped fund our first film series, How Should We Then Live? I think he put half a million dollars into it um, back in the day, and that was you know in the 1970s. And and he and I would talk, and he would say, "Well, you know, I understand all." And he was very frank about it. He would say, "Well, I understand what Fran, you know, that was my father, you know, his interest in all this stuff and art and culture and." In abortion and so on. But, it, but he said, you know, what I really want you to do is read my book on capitalism, because in yeah. the end, this is what it's about. And um, I've got a signed copy from, from him in my thing saying to, to Frankie Schaefer, who's on the right side of the, you, know, you just need to know a little more about capitalism. In other words, he was very open about the fact that, yeah, we're, we're helping these pastors and preachers and Christian stuff, but the real agenda for him was supply-side economics and Jack Kemp was his hero and the Laffer curve and all that and on it went. So I, you know, been there, done that. I want to switch gears for a minute and just talk about something that you've opened the door to here. Um, and then I know we have to wrap up because you've got some stuff you've got to do. But um, it strikes me that in not making certain connections that you're making so well, again, where there's been a kind of a falling down is that, um, more secular folks or more democratically minded folks or more liberal folks in the states don't seem to connect the dots as often as they should to the fact that the the rise of the fundamentalist right with a Christian nationalist agenda in America, well-funded as you put by people who don't give a crap about their agenda but are using it to a much bigger degree than people allow for, they don't connect the dots to the worldwide movement, which you've talked about, which is very much the same. And we talked about Bolsonaro, who counts on the 30% of the evangelical vote in Brazil, often an impoverished vote, often women's votes, by the way, on terms of family issues thrown in his favor. Uh, Modi mm -hmm. of India, nationalism, the Saudis royal family, you know, have been playing this game very well for a long time you know, in, 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 with their imams doing one thing in their own country, but when they're in their apartment in Paris or New York or London or, or you know, wherever they are, they live a whole different lifestyle. Putin, you mentioned, Kirill of the, of the Orthodox Church in Russia, hand in glove, ex-KGB, friend of Putin, wearing his, you know, $150,000 watch that they then airbrushed out when a, there was a photograph on his wrist, on and on it goes. I'd like you to talk, before we wrap up here, a little more about two things. First of all, why... Does the more does the media not talk more about this worldwide thing, this use of fundamentalist religion, fill in the blank, Islam, whatever, to achieve this political end and enrich these folks? Secondly, isn't it amazing that the model of operation of, of this international movement is very much like the big evangelical nepotistic families I was part of, where I become my father's sidekick, where Franklin Graham follows Billy goes further to the right, enriches himself, company planes, vacation homes, doesn't matter what you're earning, it's the perks where the real money is, on and on and on. First, what's going on here? Why is this happening right now in the 21st century? Secondly, why aren't we paying more attention to it? Third, why does it seem to be inconvenient for folks on the left to talk honestly about this in terms of the the, you know, they're, 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 it's easier to be down on evangelical Christians in America, white evangelical Christians, than it is, for instance, to really talk honestly about the Saudis or Erdogan in, in Turkey. What's going on here? Well, 
you know, you said something about nepotistic families and I was thinking about Trump and his sort of nepotism and his, you know, involvement. And as I was researching power worshipers and, you know, researching this women, I kept reading a lot of books where people talk about kings and kinging. Sure. And uh, here's the thing about uh, a monarch. They don't have to follow the rules. They are a law unto themselves. Yeah. And they're not rulers of democracies. They're, again, rulers often of nepotistic, plutocratic, kleptocratic autocracies. Mm -hmm. And um, that seems to be kind of a model that so many uh, of the uh, movement leaders admire. Um, yes. So, and that, that- Well, and aspire to. And aspire to, exactly. Yeah, and but the thing is, I don't think we talk enough about the fact that this model of governance is the Saudi model. It's not- well, it, wait, I just thought of something else and it's very interesting. So we were, um, I when I was, researching power worshipers, uh, one of the events I went to was the World Congress of Families. It took place in Verona, Italy, just a couple of years ago. And it mm. brought together members of, of the sort of global, they call it the global conservative movement from all these different countries. Um, uh, Russia had a very big presence. America, of course, had a very big presence, mm. um, uh, but there were representatives of other countries involved. And there was another uh, fellow from, who was talking about um, how we need to revive the aristocracy and bring back these big aristocratic families. And that's sort of part of it. It's this idea of um, a kind of more theocratic order, um, mm. uh, diminishing global, um, I would say, you know, they, they, they say we need to declare war and they said we need to declare, declare war on global liberalism, please, you know, make po liberal politicians fear you. And the idea is if you can bring back this sort of more hierarchical, rigid, sure. um, you know, uh, form of society where some members of the society have more intrinsic value than others. Uh, yeah, that's what many of these folks want because they know if they can bring that back, that they'll be on the sort of privileged side. Yeah, president for life, and or you inherit the Billy Graham organization and just power forward, but it's all the same, the same the pattern. I know. The, the amazing thing is, um, I think about somebody like Jerry Falwell Jr., who then comes around and says, you know, after all these many years of exploiting all these other people, including a number of children, uh, comes around and says, oh, well, I didn't really believe that anyway. It's like, yeah. is that a defense? Like, yeah, it's a sort of a defense, I guess. Exploiting people? Well, this, look at, yeah, look at Franklin that. Graham. I mean, Franklin Graham comes out, you know, and, and by name criticizes the 11 people in Congress who voted against Trump, uh, you know, was it during the impeachment or whatever, and names them and puts a target on their back as somehow having betrayed America because he betrays this, this grifter family, mm -hmm. you know, the Trumps. I mean, it's just quite incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to remember that, you know, a lot of people, you know, when you ask why can't people sort of face this, they still see it as a cultural movement. They still see it as defined sometimes by, they say, well, look at the attitudes of the rank and file, but this is not a leader. This is not a rank and file led movement. This is a leader driven movement and they're exploiting the rank and file in order to exploit the rest of us. Yeah, and I think that evangelicals are groomed to to see things that way anyway, because you know churches are not led in a rank and file form. You have a pastor; he's in charge, and 
and so forth and so on. Before we wrap up, let me just say once again, um, I have been interviewing Catherine Stewart, who's the author of The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of, the Relig of Religious Nationalism. And that book is out and available in paperback. We're going to put links to it everywhere. This is, please, if you like this interview, like it in the online sense of liking it or whatever it is, uh, subscribing, uh, whether it's YouTube or, or on the um, podcast part. Catherine, before I sign off here and let you go to things you need to do, uh, is there anything we haven't covered? I mean, you know, I'd really like you to just think for a moment what we've been talking about. And, and is there something you wish I'd asked you or would like to emphasize as we kind of um, end this time? And I do hope we can come back and talk some more again uh, and pursue this further. But is there something you'd like to add? The Power Worshippers is a great book and you should all run out and get it or order it or whatever you want to do. But that said, uh, is there anything you'd like to end? Any Anything you'd like to say? Oh, I just, I'm grateful to you for the conversation. I'm so grateful to you for uh, the insight that you've provided these years uh, into the movement and um, um, sort of your sort of reflections on it and uh, the work that you're doing now. So thank you so much for having me and uh, I'd be happy to come back anytime. Yeah, Catherine, I'd love to do this again. And let me ask you one last thing to just think about. Um, if there's someone else that you know about who is doing work in this area that you have been drawing on or has some insight, if you ever want to come, I mean, I want to have you back soon and talk more because uh, this, and sadly, we're going to need to keep talking about this. But if there's, there's somebody so that I researchers, I mean, there's, uh, you, you know, know, if there's someone that you want to think of that you could suggest to my producer, Ernie, and just say, hey, you really ought to have so and so on and talk to him or to her uh, or to them about this, I will do it in a heartbeat. I would love whatever recommendation you can give us because we keep trying to widen this circle. And I know that, you know, we don't know enough to, to know everybody that we ought to be talking to. And if you ever want to come back with somebody else, either a guest we've already had that you've seen on our list or someone that you can get to, invite yourself and them too, because I'd like this to go as wide as, as possible. Great. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, well, have a good day. Blessings. Thank you. Talk I really you. appreciate it. You too. My pleasure. Bye. In Conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.